invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Uh, We're going to be walking through Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me just say um, that Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. Uh, As best we understand, he was in prison in Rome, and he was writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was located in Asia Minor, a major city there, and uh, there were other cities in Asia Minor where there were churches that Paul had helped start. So this letter was probably circulated among them, and the name uh, Ephesians or Ephesus was attached to it. Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey for a very short while, And then he went back again on his third missionary journey, and he was there almost three years preaching the gospel, teaching the people, and the church in Ephesus came into existence. Now at this writing, he's writing to the church, having completed three missionary journeys, shared the gospel all over the world, started churches all over the world. Finally, in prison, he has time to sit down and reflect on the plan of God and all that is he's seen happen. And so he writes out for the Ephesians in the first three chapters of the book, God's plan for the ages to unite everything in Jesus Christ ultimately. And then he talks to them very practically about how they should live in light of that. So that's where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we start with verse 1. That word therefore ties together the two parts of the book, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, and says in light of God's plan, in light of the calling we've received in Him, this is how we're to live. And the word implore means to urge, to beg, to plead. Paul is making a very strong appeal for unity the maintaining of unity within the Ephesian church, and walk is a metaphor for the way we live. It's a reference to the daily living out of life on the part of the Ephesian believers, and worthy means consistent with, or living up to. He was urging them to live up to, to live in a way that was consistent with the calling with which they had been called in Jesus Christ, And he spelled out that, he he said more about that later in the chapter, verse 417, he said, So I say this, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. So the Gentiles was a reference to a pagan way of life. He said, that's who you used to be, so I'm, I'm calling you out of that lifestyle, not to live that way anymore, and that in, refre- in reference to that former manner of life, you lay aside the old self and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. So that's what he's saying here when he says, 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. He said, you've been called out of an old life of paganism. You've been called to life in Christ. Now walk in that life. Live out that life in Jesus Christ. And then he reminded them, he had, or he had already reminded them, of what that calling is earlier in the book, back in chapter 1. He said, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have been chosen by Christ from before the foundation of the world. You have been adopted, adopted as his sons in Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed with Christ's blood. Your sins are forgiven. You've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance of eternal life in heaven. So now live like that. Now live out your life in that new identity you have in Jesus Christ. Just like the Ephesian church, we're included in God's plan to ultimately unite everything and everybody, heavenly and earthly, in Jesus Christ. The reversal of what happened in Genesis 3 when man sinned and everything came apart, it's all going to be put together again in Christ. And we're a part of that plan. And we, like the, the Ephesian believers, have been called out of spiritual darkness to new life in Christ. And we, as a part of that plan and because of our calling in Christ, are to live in unity and preserve the unity that we have as a church family. Then in verse 2, he gets real specific of what the life is like that is worthy of our calling in Christ. And he first says it means that we live with all humility. The NIV says be completely humble. It literally means lowliness of mind as opposed to haughtiness. It was the mindset and the attitude of a slave to do anything that needed to be done in putting others ahead of himself. Jesus took that role when he came to this earth. He became a slave. And he is our best example of what Paul is saying here when he said live with all humility. In fact, Paul wrote about the life of Christ over in Philippians 2 where he said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, he's talking about relationships within the church. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in, human, in, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we're walking with Jesus as a church family, and when he is the, on the throne of each of our hearts, then our lives are characterized by humility of mind toward one another, and we live out our lives together as a church regarding each other as more important than ourselves. How are you doing with humility in FBG? Are you considering other members of this church more important than you? Or are you focused on yourself and demanding your way 
and expecting your church to cater to your preferences no matter what anybody else needs. He went on, living worthy of our calling in Christ means we live with gentleness. Another word for gentleness is meekness. Not to be confused with weakness. A gentle person is a strong and passionate person who fully submits to the Lord when wronged or mistreated. Rather than lashing out, that person goes to the Lord on his knees before the Lord and gives the Lord his resentments, his desire for revenge, his desire to retaliate and get even, and says, Lord, this is yours. Free me from it. You take this burden. Free me to relate in gentleness to my brother who has offended me and wronged me. How are you doing with gentleness in the fellowship? Living worthy of our calling in Christ means we also live with patience. That word patient means to have a wide and big soul. To have a wide and big soul. It means that we have a largeness of soul that allows us to endure the annoyances and difficulties of living together as a church over a long period of time. How are you doing with patience toward your FBG brother or sister? Is your soul wide enough and big enough? And, and how does our soul get that wide and big? By the grace of Jesus. When we experience that calling in Christ, He changes our hearts, our souls, to be wide enough and big enough to deal with difficulties and annoyances within the fellowship. One translation of this word is long-suffering. Not a very pleasant word, is it? None of us like to suffer, and if we did suffer, we don't want it to be long. But that characteristic is needed to live together as a church. Are you in this church for the long haul? Are you committed to being a part of this church? no matter what happens? Or do you practice short-suffering in relationship to this church? See, the short-suffering church member doesn't put up with anything that doesn't meet with his or her approval. And the moment something happens that doesn't meet with his or her approval, gets very unhappy and either lets everybody know about it or goes to another church and is unhappy with them without resolving the issue. So we're called here to long-suffering with each other, staying together in the body to work through our differences and our annoyances in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the call put before us when we live worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ. And we also, Paul says, tolerate one another in love. Now, I don't like that word tolerance because of what it means in our culture today. The biblical word tolerance does not mean what political correctness means. The word here means to forbear with one another in love. Literally, I, you know, I think the Bible is just humorous sometimes. The literal meaning of that word, forbear or tolerate in love, means to put up with each other in love. You know that there's sometimes when... The warm and the fuzzy goes away, and we just got to put up with each other. But we got to do it in love. 
okay? And, and I'm not talking about that warm and fuzzy feeling of love. I'm talking about that commitment of love to do what is best for each other, even if we don't feel like doing what is best for each other, to put each other ahead of our own purposes and wants and desires, a commitment of the will. So how are you doing with putting up with your FBG members in love? Now, when I ask you all those how are you doing questions, you might not have liked the answer that came to your mind. I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you're doing good. I hope you are. But let me say, when I ask myself that question, I don't find myself always measuring up to the mark. In fact, I struggle with a sense of inadequacy and failure often in living out this character that Paul's describing here in verse 2. And I often think, you know, I just don't have it in me. And then it occurs to me, I'm not supposed to have it in me. I have a sinful nature. My sinful nature does not want and cannot produce humility, gentleness, patience, and love. It's just not in me. But I do have the Spirit of God in me. And if you read these four characteristics and you compare them to Galatians 5, and 23, they're the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So where does it come from? How do we measure up? Only by the Spirit of God living within us. Only as we as a church body yield to the Spirit and not to our sinful natures do, are we able to have the character we need to preserve the unity that we've been given in Jesus Christ. So it takes the onus off of us but it does call us to our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, it's not happening inside me. Would I yield to your spirit in relation to this brother or sister that's driving me crazy? That's the commitment we're called to by the Apostle Paul. Well, living worthy of our calling in Christ means we live with gentleness, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love. And then if you'll look in verse 3, it also means that we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Diligence is eagerness. Preserve is to maintain or to guard that which is precious or valuable. Unity of the Spirit is the unity the Holy Spirit gives us because we all have the same Spirit living within us. And the bond of peace the picture here with the bond of peace is that the Holy Spirit uses peace to bind us together as a church with a chain. Peace is a chain the Spirit uses to bind us together and make us one in Christ. And that's consistent with what Paul said up in chapter 2. He himself, that is Christ, is our peace. So when you and I come to faith in Christ, we find peace and we are able to live together in a bond of peace that the Spirit binds us together in. And that, and we're to be diligent in preserving that which we hold, that which we have been given, which is unity. Growing up, my, my family highly valued blackberries. So we went to a lot of time to preserve them, to preserve what we value. Blackberries where I lived grew out in the pastures along the fence rows, these bushes that would grow up and 
you know, it was kosher to climb somebody's fence, go over in their pasture and pick blackberries and take them home. That was just the ethic of the land. It was okay to do that. So we did. We went to a lot of trouble to get our blackberries. We, there was high risk. There was risk of snake bites. There's risk of poison ivy. There's risk of getting caught in the barbed wire or in the briars on the bushes. There was risk. I remember once my grandmother and I were picking blackberries. We looked behind us and there was a bull getting ready to charge us. Risk involved. We went to great risk because we valued those blackberries. Then we worked hard. We, fro we, we took them home and we made cobbler. Now I'm talking real cobbler. Now, I'm not talking about this cobbler where they dump the cake mix in it and it kind of rises to the top. I'm talking about the cobbler where you make the crust separate and you lay it on top with big hunks of butter and sugar poured in. It bless your heart. It really will. <laughs> so we did that with them when we brought them home. And then after making the cobbler, we made sure we had some left to freeze or to make jam. To, we had to freeze them, we had to wash them, then lay them out to dry, and then had to bag them, put them in the freezer. If we made jam, you had to wash them, cook them. You had to cook it just long enough. If you cooked too long, it'd get so hard in the jar, you couldn't get it out. If you didn't kick it long, uh, cook it long enough, it would just pour out like juice. It wasn't jam. So you, you had to learn just right. And, and, and then once that happened, you poured it in the jar, let it cool off. Then you would melt the paraffin. Have you ever done that? You would melt the paraffin. You'd pour the paraffin in on top of it. It would get hard, and then you'd put a lid on it. You'd set it up on the shelf, and you'd say, Woohoo! We're going to have blackberry jam and biscuits. We went to great trouble to preserve something we highly valued. But you know what? We could not create the blackberries. God created the blackberries and we preserved them. It's the same with us and unity. We cannot in and of ourselves manufacture unity within our church. Our unity comes from our common faith in Jesus Christ. It's given to us as a gift, but we are called to work hard to preserve the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here to these Ephesian believers and to us. So Paul says, Live worthy of your calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit of the in the bond of peace. Work hard at it. That is consistent with our calling in Christ. And then in verses 4 through 6, he lays out the basis or the source of our unity as a church. This unity that's been given to us, where does it come from? Well, we see it here in these uh, three verses. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many times does he use the word one? Seven times. One. We are one in Christ. We're one not because we're all alike. If we're all alike, we wouldn't have unity anyway. 
Because we still have a sinful nature in us that's rebellious. But we have unity because of our oneness in Christ. So there's one body. We have all, when we came to Christ, became a part of the body of Christ. You see, in America, with our individualism, we emphasize the John Wayne type of Christianity. I'm a rugged individual Christian. But we are, when we receive Christ, we become a part of a body. That's our unity. We become a part of Christ's body. We have one spirit. From the moment we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up in residence in you and me, and He lives there permanently and never leaves. And He unites us. We have one hope. Our one hope is in Jesus Christ and the calling He's given us. Formerly, we were separate from Christ with no hope. Now we're a part of His family with hope for eternity. We have one Lord. We have submitted our lives to Jesus Christ. We all have that in common. He's Lord of our lives, and He's the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And everything has put, been put in subjection under His feet. And He is head over all things for us, the church. And He is our Lord, and He lives in our hearts. And we have that common submission to Christ for our unity. One faith. We've all come to Christ and been saved by faith. Up in chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. One baptism. We have submitted ourselves to immersion in water as a testimony of the transforming power of Christ in our lives and the fact that we have been identified with Him in our death, burial, and resurrection. We share that in common. And one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Having the same Father gives you a lot in common. God our Father is our Father through faith in Christ. He is over us and that He is sovereign over us. You heard that somewhere today? He is through all of us and that He is near to us. And His pervading presence is with us. He is in us and that His Spirit lives in us all. Man. Can you be more unified than that? Can there be a stronger basis for oneness and unity than what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in bringing us together as a church? I can't think of any. What you not let, what you, we need to remember this. What unites us as a church is greater than anything that could divide us. And if division happens in the church, it's not because we've not been given the, the basis for unity, it's because we've failed to preserve the unity that we've been given. And it is incumbent upon us for what God wants to do with, through our church family in this community that we preserve the unity that we've been, been given in Christ. My attention came 
to this passage of Scripture earlier this year when the pastoral staff was going through a Bible study together. We were, the curriculum assigned us this passage to study and to reflect on. And as I reflected on it, I thought about our church and I thought about the unity of our church. And I thought about it from a long-term perspective. I've been a member for 32 years. And I thought back over that and, 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 I, and I thought, man, you know, if I were to give us a grade on how we've done in the time I've been here in preserving unity, I think I'd give us a great big needs improvement. Okay? There have been some really shining moments. They just need to increase. You know? One of our greatest shining moments was last Sunday. I will never forget last Sunday. That is the body of Christ unified. It's showing grace. Was that last Sunday? Is it, yeah, okay. Seems like a long time ago. A lot's happened this week. I thought, am I remembering the right timing? A lot. And as I thought about the times when our unity has really been challenged and we've got away from our unity in Christ, it's been during times of change. In 32 years here, there's been a lot of change in this church, and it ain't slowing down now. And that's okay. That's good. Without change, what happens? We die. It means we're going the wrong direction. Life brings change, and that's what's happening. Our population has changed. Uh, 1985, the city limit sign in Georgetown said 17,000 people. I looked on the website this morning, 60,000 within the city, 85,000 in the ETJ. I can never say that right. Extraterritorial jurisdiction. It's easier to say the word than the letters for me. Our location as a church has changed. We used to be on Main Street, two blocks of the square. Now, we're on University Avenue and at the Cheer Gym and Liberty Hill. Our location has changed. Do you think that didn't stir up some challenges to unity? It did. Big time. Uh, the size of our church has changed. In 1985, we had maybe three to 400 on Sunday morning. Now we have 12 to 1,500 on Sunday morning. That means relationships within the church change. That means relationships with pastors change. That's one of the reasons it's hard for my age group, the 55 plus, to walk through the change. Many of us have come from small churches where the pastor's shown up every time we've stumped our toe. And at our birthday parties and our anniversaries, it can't happen in a church this size. So senior adults, we struggle with that, some do. So we, we, we have, and that's a challenge to unity. It's a challenge because it's easy to feel, when you get old, let me tell you what's going to happen when you get old. You don't mind change a whole lot now, but when you get old, let me tell you what change does to you. It makes you feel like a big, fat zero. That's oftentimes. It makes you feel left out, disregarded, and overlooked. It's the biggest challenge 
our 55-plus age group is facing in our church is the rate and amount of change that we've gone through and are going through. And, and I really challenged them this morning. And I realize there are 55-plus in this service as well. But we have a concentration in the early service. It, it's, it's difficult and challenging. Not only has the size of our church changed, but our, the, way, the name we call ourselves in the community has changed. We're First Baptist Church officially. No plans to change our official name. But you know, when I came here, we were First Baptist Church. And then for a while, we were First Baptist West and First Baptist Downtown because we were two, quote, one church at two locations. And then we became First Baptist Georgetown. And years ago, we put it on the sign out front, First Baptist Georgetown. And then now we're FBG. I've been talking to my age group and saying, you know, they say, well, are we ashamed of being a church? We've taken church out of the name. I said, no, that's not it. I said, you know, you used to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now you go to KFC. You used to go to Dairy Queen. Now do you go to DQ. You used to go to First Baptist Church. Now you go to FBG. It's the same thing. It's the very same thing. In this age of information overload, we need easy ways to remember things. And besides that, God is calling us to reach our county with multiple campuses. So you can't be First Baptist Church Liberty Hill. But you can be FBG Liberty Hill and FBG Gerald. In FBG, wherever else, God leads us to establish a new campus. So, I'm trying to understand that, and I'm trying to help my age group understand that. It's not a step away from what we've been committed to historically. It's a step to move further into what we've been committed to historically. Our leadership has changed, our pastoral leadership. In the time I've been here, I've worked with four pastors. The first is a volunteer, three on the staff. And with every pastor, change has come. And with every pastor, our church has resisted the changes that God has led him to lead us in. That, what I said early service, that has to change. There's just no two ways about it. We've got to repent of the way we've been... We've got to change the way we've been dealing with change. Don't you love that, huh? Change the way we've been dealing with change. The way I look at it, <clears throat> you read in Ephesians 4, it says that God gives the church pastors and teachers and others named to lead the church. God does it. And we have a process set up, and we followed that process every time we've called a pastor. We have a process set up where we select trusted people within the church to, on behalf of the church, search out a person that God is calling to come here and be our pastor. And we pray for that group, and they pray, and they investigate, and they present, and we vote, and he comes, and then what do we do? 
We follow his leadership unless he disqualifies himself as pastor. We don't decide we're not going to follow his leadership just because he's not doing everything the way I want him to. We follow his leadership as long as he's walking consistent in his relationship with Christ and leading our church. That's a challenge to walk through that change. Our dress has changed in worship. Did you know? Look, at, look up here. Look up here. This is the first time I've preached in this church without a coat and tie. Woohoo! Woohoo! The old man still learns new. Tra- you know, I, I, say, I say to my grade group, okay, so what? If the worship leader staying here with holy jeans and his, t- and his shirt tail out. So what? You know, we, my generation was taught when you go to church, you put on your best because you're going into the presence of the king. So if you want to understand why that's been our tradition, that's why we've been taught that. And, and, and there's, there's basis for that in the scripture. To go into the Holy of Holies, you just didn't go sauntering in, you know. You didn't. But, I, so I ask, I, I ask some folks, why is it important to dress this way, casually, in worship? And, and here's the answer I got. Because it's symbolic of the fact that God loves and accepts us just as we are, and we don't have to do anything to fix ourselves up to be loved and accepted by Him. I love that. So every time I see Jared standing up here leading us in worship, I'm just reminded that God loves and accepts us as we are. Right, Jared? Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> He'll get me back, I know. (laughs) Our worship styles have changed. We've had all kinds of names for our worship services. You know, contemporary and traditional and modern and text three and bands and orchestras and worship teams and organs and pianos and all kinds of things. If I don't like a song, I am to forbear because somebody else is being ministered to by that song. I'm not going to run around and give Kurt a hard time and talk about him behind his back like it would be easy to do. The age of our leadership has changed. Do you know that of all of our staff that has pastor or minister in the title, there's one over 50. Guess who he is? One over 50. And do you know that seven of those guys that I work with are the age of my kids or younger of my sons? What a blessing that is. That to me is confirmation of my dreams and hopes for everything I've invested in this church. I'm going to be buried over at the Odd Fellow, isn't that great? The Odd Fellow Cemetery. <laughs> behind Southwestern, and when I'm buried in the Oddfellow Cemetery, I want to know that this church is still here preaching the gospel, and the fact that we've got 
young folks stepping into pastoral and volunteer leadership means that what I've worked for all my life is being fulfilled, and all my age group needs to be celebrating that and, and encouraging and supporting and mentoring and working alongside and affirming and following the leadership that God's raising up. So leadership age has changed. I'm going crazy. By the way, Kevin didn't know I was going to say any of this stuff, okay? <laughs> he only knew that I was going to preach on unity and on Ephesians 4, and the end result of it all may be more disunity. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, why am I talking about all these changes? It's because they're a challenge to our unity. And because I think before the Lord, First Baptist Georgetown would not receive very high marks on how we've responded to the changes that have come our way and will continue to come our way as a church. And I think there, including me, there needs to be repentance, repentance in our church for the way we've responded to change and those who are leading us through change. And we need to preserve this wonderful gift of unity that God's given us. Why do we need to preserve it? Do you know that the Bible says that those who don't know Christ will know we are Christians by our love for each other? And if we're fighting and bickering and pulling a thousand different directions, we're not showing love for each other. And we're not united in Christ the way we need to be. What's at stake? Well, the eternal destiny of men and women and boys and girls who live in Georgetown and Williamson County. That's what's at stake. We can have our own little party here and be upset about somebody did something that I don't like and go tell everybody about it or stomp off to another church and all the while people are dying and going to hell. And we have the responsibility of carrying the gospel to them. If you read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, you get a vision of this plan. God's plan, established before time began. A plan once hidden, but now revealed in Christ. A plan to reverse the effects of the fall with its pain and its brokenness and its divisiveness. A plan to unite everything and everybody in Christ, both earthly and heavenly, A plan fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who now reigns at the right hand of the Father. A plan that's being made known through the church. The church triumphant, exalted, and united. A church given a message of reconciliation. And that's First Baptist Georgetown is a part of that. A plan we will help fulfill as a church as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. 
as we live the character that helps maintain unity, preserve it. And as we work hard to preserve it. And we remain focused not on what our differences are, but what we have in common in Christ, the oneness we have.